Hello and welcome to the Rising Edge DNO podcast. This is part two of our deep dive into employment disputes and employment practices liability, known to us as EPL. Uh, it's a discussion with Owen Dacey, of course, joined by Louise Bloomfield and Anjali Sharma, both of DAC Beechcroft, and Isabel Alvarez, HR Director at Rising Edge. In this second part, we mostly focus on what happens in the event of a dispute and claim, how to handle it, and look forward to future trends. Let's say, unfortunately, we do have something, some, something of a, I get, for, for one of a better phrase, a dog's dinner, <laughs> and ACAS can't work their magic. The, the employees resigned. The, the employer is suspecting that this is probably one where, where there is going to claim to, to, that's going to follow. What can they do? Again, sort of thinking proactively at that point, what can they be doing um, to get ready to respond proactively in the event of an actual formal um, claim being made? The first thing from an insurance perspective is obviously make you know, notify as early as they can if they've not done so already, you know, just to protect you know their position, the policy, and also protect insurer's position to be able to instruct you know defence panel and or intervene if if ACAS early conciliation is still ongoing. For example, you know a quick and dirty mm-hmm. assessment of a case might be all that it needs to try and resolve it. Or if the claimant's made a specific settlement offer, which it may have done. What, what's been the response to that? Does it look reasonable? So all that kind of early stuff needs to be done. I mean, in terms of the proactive steps it can take as a you know likely party to litigation, I think the, the most important thing is about firstly document preservation. So that is also, you know, I barely write anything down anymore. If you've written anything down, you know, don't put things in the bin. <laughs> Don't destroy things. Don't try and sanitize notes mm. or do anything which could then come back to bite. You know, we've we've had the odd case where people have thought it's helpful to try and rewrite the past. It is what it is. And our job as employment lawyers is to help people navigate through that. But the last thing we want is to be, you know, an, an insured employer to be in a position where they're being accused of trying to undermine evidence. That's our job to help figure that out and you know plan a strategy so preserve documents that also includes emails texts whatsapps instant messenger whatever form of instant messenger platform is used internally if people have left preserving their email inbox is always a key one you know it's always quite tricky when you're trying to defend a case where you know, an employer says to you, oh, we haven't got access to their inbox anymore. You don't have access to that shared folder anymore. So do a, do an IT lockdown, I think, is one key proactive step. The other thing is to start to, uh, you know, think about who is involved in that litigation. So it might be a case of making sure that they're aware of it to help make sure that that preservation takes place. But I think also another Another step I would say is to lock down who knows about it, because in particular in discrimination cases or whistleblowing cases, the most sort of emotional ones, what we don't want is bad mouthing to take place or gossip and things like that, because that can actually lead to newer claims of victimization, for example. So it's a need to know basis. It's that document preservation, it's that notification to insurers so that steps can be taken to put a ring around that employer to give them the best defense 
um, and legal representation that they can have. But also one thing we always say when we're instructed on EPL claims and we're speaking to insurers for the first time is just tell us everything. Don't try and sanitize it. Tell us where you think you've got issues. Tell us where there's strengths. You know, talk to us and be open with us because by being open with us, we can plan, you know, to provide the best advice and the best strategy for dealing with that matter. Almost no note is, uh, or um, a bad note is better than a sanitized note after the event. Have you seen this? And presume, obviously, this is all good advice because eventually these things come out and it look, and it's going to look terrible. Have you seen that happen? Is there on any, have you seen examples of that where someone maybe is even trying to do, they're just trying to do the right thing maybe for their employer, but obviously it's a, it's a terrible idea. Have you, have you seen people trying to rewrite the past and it coming back to bite them? Yes, absolutely. This can, can happen. Sometimes when, when, you know, people uh, make mistakes, you know, you might try and, you know, you, you panic and, you, you know, you try to, to go back and indeed rewrite what, what happened. I dealt with a, with a case where, you know, someone decided that, you know, some documents had not been signed by the employee and, and it was a good idea just to go ahead and, and sign those documents for completeness of the process, right? But uh, effectively that turned out to be a terrible idea um you know so these, these things do happen you know when people panic uh, you can just make mistakes but what i would say very important and and sometimes we we don't do this early enough right once the dispute is there once the claim is there you know absolutely make sure you're honest very and open and honest with your lawyers and the other thing is you might want to ask the employee or the person bringing the claim, the claimant, what is it that they are looking for? You know, uh, very often, you know, we actually forget to to ask that question. It doesn't mean that, you know, that the employer is going to to give the, the claimant or the ex-employee or the employee what they're looking for, but it does help to frame what the person really is looking for, right? And then, obviously, uh, it helps with the, with the settlement discussions and, and so on. Yeah, I love the way you've put that. What are you looking for? It's a, um, it's a really open question. Yes. Like you said, um, people put tin hats on ready for litigation when actually um, it's not game over in terms of being able to resolve it. So again, we've talked about it's probably good to get defense lawyers involved as early as possible. When do you most often get involved, Louise Anjali? Do you, are you kind of picking up the, um, the claim form sort of three months after it's been filed and no response? Or what, I mean, what's been your experience there? Or do you, do you get involved early as well? We typically get involved for, on EPL matters. We typically get involved when it's actually in a claim submitted. Um, so the, the ACAS early conciliation period has expired. Um, sometimes it's helpful to get in earlier than that if we can, because like we say, we can do, we, you know, we're so used to dealing with these types of claims. We can sort of see immediately where the weaknesses are or where the strengths are to help sort of frame that discussion and maybe resolve the matter. But we typically get it, you know, here's a claim, and there's a 28-day period from the date of issue of the claim to file a defence. Sometimes we've got loads of time. We have the full 28 days. Uh, that is a luxury. Sometimes we get two days or one day even, or sometimes we'll get insurers saying, help, we've only got it today, and you've got today to file a defence. And that can be challenging for obvious reasons, the earlier we can get it, the better. 
because we then obviously want to make sure that we're covering all of the points in a defence. And it's not just telling the story. There are key sort of legal points that we might want to be able to, to raise, such as is the claim out of time? Is the claim really poorly pleaded so we don't really know what it's about? Is the employee who's bringing the claim even an employee? You know, we, mm. there can be claims brought by self-employed people that don't actually have the right to bring that type of claim. So obviously we hope to get it in a state where we can at least have those discussions and explore the evidence in a fairly quick way. Obviously the closer to the defence deadline, the worse it can be. Sometimes we get claims where the defense deadline has been missed now on a hard sort of line if if you if an if if an employer misses a defense deadline it will have a default judgment issued against it and it won't be allowed to participate in the hearing any anymore but there's sometimes excuses as to why it didn't get the claim form and because um, the tribunal system has, has faced some challenges over the last few years and is essentially operating with more claims than it can handle. Mm. Things have slipped through the net. So we have had situations for employers where they simply didn't get the claim form. And the first they know about it is they see a default judgment. And we can work our magic to get that essentially resurrected. During COVID, for instance, a lot of claim forms were sent to employers where there was literally nobody in the building. Mm. So deadlines were missed for those reasons. It might be that the claim has been issued to um, a closed premises. This is a post-COVID world or literally just didn't make its way through the post at all or was sent to the wrong um, business address. If we've got a good reason as to why the defence deadline has been missed, then we there, there are legal arguments that we can make, make and, and we do quite regularly, and they are successful as to why the claim should still be, you know, why our defence should still be allowed to be heard. If, however, an employer has simply got the tribunal papers and done nothing with them, then a tribunal is likely to say, you've had your chance and you've missed it, and we'll issue a default judgment. So... The, the sort of key thing on on any on any claim we would say is for in, you know, employers to make sure that they waive this tribunal papers, whether it to their broker, to their insurer, to their legal advice, to say we've got this deadline and we need to adhere to it. I think also the thing I would say is we have had some situations where deadlines have been missed, we've come on record, and then the insured have perhaps not told us that they've actually been in communication with the employment tribunal with perhaps not necessarily always the strongest explanation as to why deadlines are missed. And that unfortunately puts the insured, you know, and both the insurer on the back foot in regards to those types of issues, because what we try to be is very upfront with the employment tribunal. We don't want to be disingenuous with them because that automatically puts the insured on the back foot, the employer on the back foot when they're dealing with things like that. So if there has been communication with the employment tribunal and there has been a reason that a deadline has been dismissed, please do tell us because we can factor that into our strategy as to how we deal with a defence rather than sort of skirting around issues, really giving a genuine and reasoned explanation as to why the the deadline might have been missed. As Louise said, in COVID times, they were a little bit more forgiving. Um, Employment tribunals are perhaps not so forgiving now. You know, these are important court documents. They are important that they are responded to. Simply ignoring them because you're too busy or, you know, it was 
located in your desk and it, you, you put it there and forgot about it isn't going to curry any kind of favour with an employment tribunal. Yeah, so that's the, I mean, the main pitfall then, I think we were going to come on some pitfalls, but the main pitfall means seems to be one like do something with the claim form. Yeah. Uh, are there any other ones um, other than that? I mean, that's that's obviously the first one that comes up. Any other pitfalls you to avoid at that early stage? I think from an early stage, it's just making sure that you guys are notified from an insurance mm. point of view, because you know the, the sooner that your insurer gets on board and you get buy-in in terms of a dis- defence strategy, the better, I think, from, from all parties' perspectives. Don't think, oh, actually, it's not that important. It's an employment tribunal. You know, people will see, oh, you know, county court or high court, you know, those are really, really important. This is equally as important as well. And actually... As Isabel said, these are all really emotive subjects. And you can just imagine that if, you know, if that's one employee, what's the rest of the workforce feeling like as well? Are we just opening ourselves up actually for mass litigation? And then before you know it, you've got one or 10 different employment tribunals all sat at the same employment tribunal. And what I think, you know, people have to remember here is you don't want to be on the naughty step, so to speak, of your local employment tribunal, because judges will remember going, actually, seen so-and-so here before me with exactly the same issue not their their lesson here so what is going on Mm. the other the other point i want to highlight on claims is discrimination claims as well as whistleblower but typically discrimination claims can not only just be brought against the employer but also they can name individual respondents Mm -hmm. as well so it could be the directors it could be their line manager doesn't have to be in a statutory director they can be named as you know, also personally liable for the acts of discrimination and they can be a party to the litigation. So if, a, if, if an insured receives a claim, they need to check who are the parties mm-hmm. because it might not just be employer. It could be one, two. We've got somewhere there's 10 or more yeah. named respondents and we need to therefore, one, from an insurance point of view, are those individuals covered under the policy or as a for directors is a separate dno cover here two are these people even aware that they've actually got a claim against them and um, what are we going to do about that uh, are we supportive of them because we don't think they've done anything wrong three if we do think they've done something wrong or there is a conflict it might be that they need separate legal representation but importantly, it goes back to that deadline point is the deadline equally applies to them. Mm-hmm. And so we've got I've got a case at the minute where I've got four named respondents and one of them now lives in Spain or somewhere doing something on a yacht or something like that. Trying to get hold of yeah. them to be able to say, we need you to review this defense because it actually represents you as well. So trying to get those individuals to recognise that they've got a part to play in this can be can be quite challenging sometimes. So again, what's really important is that we make sure that we've triple checked who are the parties, have we got representation secured for them, and what have they got to say about the, the defence? Because they've equally got as much skin in the game as the employer has as well. And I think it's also important to remember, the reason I sort of laugh is because I've got one at my de- on my desk at the moment where the employment relationship has broken down with with the said named respondent to you know to the point where 
there is a conflict because they've been dismissed. You know, so that automatically sort of puts individuals on back on the back foot. Like, well, why should I help my employer? Why should I help, you know, the insured entity when they already feel, feel quite hard done by? But the fact is, that, you know, for us, it's easier because we can take the emotion out of it so we can separate the two. Say, look, absolutely get what you're saying, but this is important. Like, as Louise said, you're a named respondent in these proceedings. You need to you need to provide us with a response. You need to attest to what that what's being leveled against you in the, the employment Claim. So it's really important that we have engagement from all parties and actually that we're giving we're given access to them. You know, often that we find that maybe a HR department or someone more senior is trying to control access to the individuals, but whether they think that they've got sort of horrible things to say or they don't want us to hear what they're saying. But it's really important that we get to speak to everybody because people might have differing version of events and that then probably feeds into how we deal with it with those particular claims, especially when, you know, you've got an insured body and that, as Louise said, you could have multiple named respondents and it's being able to manage that for everybody aside from any kind of conflict situation. But especially important for insurers as well and actually the insured that they are dealing with matters in a quick, sensible and robust manner. Yeah, if there's a conflict, we absolutely want to be involved in making sure it's dealt with appropriately with separate legal representation. Okay, so taking us on to sort of negotiated resolution as opposed <laughs> to an adjudication by a tribunal, which um, uh, which can happen. What what are the most? Um, Isra, I'm going to come to you on this one first, if that's okay. What what do you think? What are the kind of common barriers to that to a resolution, and um, how do you overcome them? That's a, a good question, right? I mean, I would say. In, in my experience, the main barriers are actually feelings. You know, people get, you know, they, they you know, we, we all take uh, this type of disputes, employment disputes, uh, very personally, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you know, for some people it's their business and for some other people it's their life, right? They spend how many hours a day we spend at work, right? So so in a way, it, it is emotional. It's, it might be your li- livelihood. Right, so it is an emotional topic. So I would say feelings are the most difficult thing to overcome in a dispute. And indeed, I mean, to try to look at the dispute from an unemotional angle, if you can, uh, and to do a lot of reflection. Right on. Okay, so how how could we move this this forward? And then ask the question. Really, if you don't you don't ask the question on you know what is it that you are looking for? So once you are in that dispute, once you are at the tribunal, if you haven't been able to settle beforehand, then what is it that the person is looking for? Because you know they, you might be surprised you know what the the individual is looking for, and you might be able to again be commercial about it, right? And and just offer something that it is acceptable to to the other party and um yeah and on that point about asking asking the question again and being might be surprised what comes back i just thought again of and i have seen this in in the real world examples that asking for an apology from from mm-hmm. x or what other have you seen any other uh, sort of interesting surprising requests that come back other than the <laughs> the apology so i've just negotiated a session which involved the reinstatement mm-hmm. of the individual so they just wanted their job back mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's not going to work in all cases, particularly if everyone hates each other. So we're not going to go there. But but actually, this was just an, a, a situation where the individual had an injury, a manager didn't really deal with it very well, and actually got to a point now where we're satisfied it can all be dealt with and the person's coming back to work. And that's all now negotiated as part of the settlement. 
But yeah, like, like you say, apologies can often be the way forward. Sometimes a change in line manager can can help be facilitated. I mean, but 99% of settlements will have yeah. some monetary value assigned to them, whether it be a very small sum or a very large sum or all points in between. But there are some more creative yeah. ways in which we can try and broker settlements you know to resolve matters is this one there about feelings getting in the way there what other kind of barriers do you do you see that commonly and what other kind of barriers do you do you see on the on the claim side to settlements typically it will you know employers can often be concerned about precedent setting so you pay this one off mm. are we not just going to end up paying a load more off particularly if you're looking at it for you know maybe litigation arising from a redundancy exercise or reorganization where they'd have concerns that settling with one person might just just be the sort of the, the tip of the iceberg for others or just generally about you know there's sometimes a perception that particularly if it's a, relating to a conduct dismissal is is settlement not just rewarding poor behavior so that can, you know, those sorts of things can be in the forefront of an employer's mind, because obviously under settlements, under COT threes, you'll have fairly standard confidentiality wording, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it actually stays confidential. Mm. And so, you know, are you really going to start then enforcing court proceedings to try and stop an employee talking about it if they go ahead and do talk about their settlement? So. They are quite can be quite leaky, to be honest with you. Um, sort of settlements, you know, as, as, as with the best will in the world, we obviously try and keep things confidential. We can't go as far as to gag people. Obviously, there are exclusions within settlement wording that allow people to report things to the regulators, go to the police, all that kind of stuff, as it should be. But there are, you know, the, some of the barriers are that concern it. Well, if we pay this person this money, everyone's going to know about it. And that is just going to cause us headaches in the future. So going to move on to the, the kind of final bit of our discussion. And we, we've, we've talked about pre-claim, during claim, settlement want to move on now just to kind of some uh, some trends so we'd like to kind of look into the future and see what's on the horizon here on the podcast have you got any sort of in in the world of employment disputes any interesting um trends that people should be keeping an eye on at the moment yeah i mean i think the, the first one is that obviously we are about to or are in a recession <laughs> depends on which newspapers you read recessions breed redundancies slash reorgs which necessarily breed an increase in typically unfair dismissal or, you know, redundancy type claims. So we are expecting to see an uptick in those types of claims. And obviously to bring those types of claims, you have to have at least two years service. So for those who are dismissed where they don't have that level of service, but are dismissed as a result of redundancy, we might then see them using another lever to try and bring the claim. So by saying, well, you've only chosen me for redundancy because of my whatever protected characteristic it may be, or because I'm a whistleblower. And allied to that, when you're dealing with recessions and employers having to, and obviously the energy crisis as well, just the, just the, the nature of the increase of costs for businesses, they've got to then cut their cloth accordingly. So we're likely to see probably employers sort of doubling down on tackling poor performance. And sometimes that poor performance, might the process might not be handled very well, or 
the underlying reason for the poor performance might be disability related. And then that breeds in and of itself discrimination risks. We've also interestingly seen a bit of an uptick in age discrimination claims. In terms of the statistics around that, we've seen probably moving from typically you'd get about 2,000 or so age discrimination claims a year. But actually, in the last set of stats from uh, the National Employment Tribunal statistics, it shot up to 15,000. And I did a bit of research thinking, well, why can that be? Because sometimes you see those upticks in the type of claim because there's been some kind of mass litigation. But there's nothing to that. Sometimes the most adversely impacted group when it comes to redundancies are older workers. And actually, sometimes they're the most expensive as well because they've been there a long time, typically. And so we've seen this uptick. And I'm, I'm, I'm my sort of thinking on this is we might continue to see that trend around age discrimination where if people are, you know, as, as recession hits and bites, older workers maybe feel more of the brunt of that, that we might see that that upward trajectory of age discrimination claims start to continue. And they can obviously be, you know, expensive claims as well, you know, particularly if you're looking at somebody who's saying it's going to be harder for me to get another job, particularly another job at the same level of income, um, which means that they could get damages up to what would be their theoretical retirement age. So they're, they're things that we're sort of thinking is more more unfair dismissal, potentially more discrimination claims for those who've not got the two-year service. Does that trend around age discrimination also start to continue? And typically on a sort of cycle basis, when we've looked back to sort of 2008, which was the, you know, obviously a big recession in that year, around 2012, 13, another recession, you see that curve go up in terms of the numbers of claims around particularly those unfair dismissal redundancy type claims. It's really interesting. Interesting from a litigation point of view, actually, just from a claims perspective, is that how long it takes for a claim to get dealt with at the mm. employment tribunal? So one would hope that it gets dealt with swiftly. You know, pre-COVID, they were looking to get claims dealt with between six to nine months. And that was ambitious, I think, to say the least. COVID hit and everything stopped for a, for a good period of time. But actually, the impact of that has meant that claim that the life of a claim has become elongated quite a lot. So, you know, we are now seeing, especially in the Southern Tribunal, so I'm sort of talking about London Central, Watford, Croydon, claims not being listed until 2024. So claims might now be submitted, but actually you've got the best part of 12 to 18 months to wait and to have this hanging over your head for this litigation to continue. So whilst the Northern Tribunals are a little better, um, actually, I think Manchester is probably no, no, good. Uh, you know, our, our hometown of Leeds, actually, it scares us how efficient they are. Go on, Leeds. <laughs> we love Leeds. Um, but Manchester is, you know, is having some problems just in terms of resourcing. So, you know, that also fits into why we talk to insureds about earlier settlement, because otherwise, as I'm sure they'd love to speak to Louise and I for the next 12 to 18 months, they've got better things to be doing <laughs> than having litigation ha you know, hanging over their heads. They've got bigger projects. With a recession coming up, do they need to focus on that? So it's making sure that actually we've got buy-in from everybody when we can kind of see what's coming in the future, because this is going to be hard. It's, it's going to yeah. be problematic. And as I said, you know, 12 to 18 months, 
will the insured even still be around? So, so it's an incredibly long time to be waiting for, for both parties. Yeah. It's, it's um, a very long time. Thank you. I think those are two really interesting trends. So I'll be looking into age discrimination and just simply the, the, the amount of time now it can take to for a case to get before a tribunal. Isa, what do you think about some of those those trends? Yeah, actually, I mean, on the age discrimination, I mean, I was uh, recently looking at, um, you know, a very interesting topic, which is, you know, um, at the moment there is a new conversation, well, new, uh, taking, you know, taking momentum, if you if you want, about women and menopause. And, um, and actually, this might be something that we might see coming through the tribunals, you know, more and more in the future, as people people start being, you know, perhaps more aware and, you know, more out there, you know, with their rights and, you know, the symptoms of menopause on women and how that impacts their ability to perform in the workplace, right? So that might actually Mm -hmm. be um, something that we might see coming through the the tribunals as well. Yeah, I agree. We've seen um, some cases Mm -hmm. relating to menopause where it's just been passed off as being a phase or not long term but actually some of the the symptoms of it can be incredibly debilitating and can actually cause you know substantial adverse and long-term effects on people that does then qualify for them to be disabled and as 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 Isabel just said there there has been case law that's confirmed that the same goes for long COVID as well we're sort of seeing that being a thing in terms of the impact of COVID now creating essentially a new form of disability where the the impact of of COVID has caused somebody to have those long-term conditions. Um, And sometimes there's been a sort of psychological thing that, you know, COVID's been and gone, we move on. But actually, that's another thing that can't be ignored as having completely gone away. So I think long COVID is something just to be alive to as well. Okay, so... I'm just going to move on to war stories. I think we learn so much from from like almost some of the worst things that happened. So, Isa, can I go to you first? Can you give me a, maybe an ACAS um, war story or tribunal war story that, that you've been through and tell us what, what happened and what you learned from, from kind of being witness to those those events? Uh, you know, I mean, I, there are so many, you know, but actually <laughs> I must say one that has stuck with me for for ever, you know, was a time when I, I went to the employment tribunal to to do some some training with a, with some of my colleagues, right? And we were observing as members of the public, and this was an unfair dismissal claim, and it was a, you know like a, an NHS trust, and and a doctor had been dismissed, and the doctor was actually self representing, and obviously the trust had their lawyers and so on. And what was incredible, you know, at the time where the claimant calls is the turn of the HR director to be to be interviewed, you know, as a as a witness. So the the lady takes the stand, and um, and you know the claimant kept asking all these questions, right? And and the lady would not look at the claimant, right? So she had her her back turned to the to the gentleman, and the, eventually the the gentleman asked, uh, "Excuse me, could you please turn around so so I can see your your face, so that you are understanding what I'm asking, or you can hear what I'm, I'm actually asking?" And the lady says, "Oh, I would rather not look at you." And uh, oh, you know, and this was so the the, the man then asked the the judge. Could you please, you know, ask her to to turn around so I can, uh, you know, 
put my questions forward. And the lady, she was so insistent that she would, you know, really adamant that she would not look at the claimant uh, in the face because, you know, she found the guy really unpleasant. Um, and this was, you know, well, obviously the HR director and she had made the decision to dismiss, right? So, so obviously you can imagine how <laughs> that landed. I mean, that really had an impact on the entire case, really. I mean, so what my, my learning, you know, from that experience was that you never know how you ever going to perform at the tribunal, right? I mean, it is um, it's a really difficult thing to go through, right? And and everybody is very nervous, so so people behave in you know all sorts of odd manners. <laughs> I'd like to say Isabel's um, story is probably you know few and far between, but it's probably not what uh, Luis and I have experienced, and we've got numerous war stories that we can tell. But I think from our point of view, just in terms of tribunal proceedings themselves, is just have making sure sort of witnesses are prepared because we have seen cases where our witnesses are on the witness stand and have completely changed their evidence. Mm. So we you know we've helped them, we've drafted their witness statements, gone through, you know, each bit of correspondence in the agreed bundle that relates to them. They get asked a question by the claimant's representative or the claimant's barrister or the claimant themselves. As Isabel said, you know, because employees, claimants can represent themselves, that that can be quite testing for some witnesses, especially if it's a very emotive subject. Um, And then they'll just completely fall apart on the witness stand and just say something that's completely contrary to all of the instructions that they've given you perhaps for the past two years. Say, actually, no, one sort of standard question that witnesses are asked in in employment tribunals is, did you write your witness statement? And, you know, the witness statement is theirs. They're giving evidence on the road and they'll turn around and go, no, my lawyer lawyer wrote my witness statement for me. Um, And then their credibility is shot to pieces, so to speak, because, you know, we have seen witnesses who just say, yeah, actually, I don't agree with what's in my witness statement. Um, I think if it was me making this decision, actually, it would be this now. And trying to then row back from that is exceptionally difficult, if not impossible to deal with. But also where um, you turn up on the day of the tribunal, I think we've had this before, haven't we, Louise, where a witness, is, a witness turns up with a bag full of documents yeah, yeah. that hasn't previously been given to us. Yeah. No, I had one case where it was going to like a seven-day hearing and everyone was fully prepped. And on day one, mm-hmm. one of our witnesses turned up, I think it was a literal shoebox <laughs> yeah. with documents in it. It's- and we're like, what's this? And it's like, oh, it's all this data that's really important. And we're like, why have we not seen this before? The hearing had to be postponed. Mm-hmm. We got an absolute earful from the judge, including, I think, they might have awarded costs yeah. against us because, you know, this late disclosure that clearly postponed the hearing and everything. So it's an absolute nightmare. And I know the person was just trying to be helpful, but... We constantly reiterate to employers and you know, the people we're dealing with, you know, the duty of disclosure is ongoing. You must disclose everything. You must. And we go through all the evidence. It's never mentioned before. And then you say an, an yeah. actual shoebox of documents turns up on the day, first day of a seven-day hearing, and it just <laughs> blows it all apart. So we do we do our best. But everybody's human. Um, but sometimes you just can't legislate for things yeah. like that. Um, we can be quite challenging and and also i think probably both for you and for us 
and you guys as insurers as well is late notification mm. where all of a sudden you guys get a claim through and before you know it you've got a hearing in two weeks time where there's been no prep done no one's agreed a bundle no one's been spoken to about witness statements and then trying to turn that round in in less than 10 working days it's not impossible but it is quite problematic. So, you know, early notification, whatever it may well be, just making sure that everybody's on, is singing from the same hymns sheet, so to speak, that if there is something, it's not been left until the last minute to deal with. And I'd like to say they are the exception rather than the norm, but they're not not as often that we see those but we, but we do see those where they've tried to deal with it themselves it then comes to you guys and then us as panel and then you have to unpick it it makes it quite problematic to deal with it but also i think from insurer's point of view is what you want to know is is there any merit in running this to an actual final tribunal but if we've literally got two weeks to try and do that it makes it near on impossible to try and and merits do the merits assessment for you guys because we've got to focus on doing the bundle of documents the witness statements we're probably by that point in breach of all sorts of tribunal directions trying to negotiate with perhaps an unrepresented claimant you know who may have done their witness statement so like i said it, it they are difficult to deal with but it does it does happen and you know we have a big enough team here that we can deal with that but what we always always try and do is make sure we are on the front foot rather than the back foot in terms of tribunal proceedings especially if we are going to a, a final hearing now most of the time with EPL claims we can settle the matter very few of the claims that we deal with run to a final hearing but that happens so what we have to ensure that we are doing is having that case prepped done nice and nice and early. But, you know, there are so many more stories that we, we, we could tell, but, you know, but the majority of them kind of relate to not being told things, despite the fact we've asked them to tell us things. Like, don't be afraid to tell, whether it's us or, any, you know, any other sort of panel solicitors dealing with the maths for you, if you think there is something problematic, because we can deal with it before you're sat on the witness stand giving evidence. As you know, as Isabel says, it's not a pleasant experience giving witness evidence. I was threatened with it once and I wouldn't want to do it at all. It's really hard. It can be quite, become quite emotive. And, you know, at the end of the day, you are being challenged. If we can avoid that for you, that's what we always try and do. Okay, Owen, a lot to digest over those two parts and a very new topic for me in particular. Uh, what were your kind of key takeaways from that discussion? Yeah, as I predicted, a brilliant conversation, so much there. Um, and we're extremely grateful to all of our guests for, for giving up the time and sharing their knowledge um, and experience with us. Takeaways, uh, there's, as I said, and as you said, <laughs> there's a lot there, um, so it's difficult, but I'm going to break it down two from each part. Pre-claim phase, for those companies without an HR team or resource, that ACAS website is a great resource. So um, like Louise said, get, give it a Google and see what you can find there. It might, might provide a starting point. Or at the very least, you can find the minimum standards there for dealing with disciplinary issues and grievance issues, which often can lead to claims. Um, just on that grievance phase, my learnings there, this phase really is about that, that early engagement, listening, as as um, Isa said, um, so important and trying to understand what the issues are and then communication about the process and how it will work keeping those managing expectations 
And just remembering really the purpose of that phase, I think Anjali says, really about to try and get that relationship back on track. That is the purpose of that phase. And then also an important point, just I, I know it's two takeaways, but this is all part of one, I think. That phase is so important to consider what's being recorded, what is being written down, what is being communicated, because remember, a lot of it may become disclosable at some point in the future. So think about it through that lens. Moving on to part two, when there is a claim, or even when there is, you know, even before there's a claim, that wonderful question for Lisa asks, what is it you are looking for? It seems so simple, but I think it's possible to underestimate just how, how a question like that can, can help break deadlock, or at least you might be better informed going forward about what, what might be driving the situation. And like Isa said, it doesn't always mean that the employer can provide what's being requested, but, but yeah, I just thought that was a great great reminder great takeaway and the theme again about recording and documenting feed through to when there is a claim and i think it was anjali and louise actually making making points there about the importance of being open and honest with your own your own lawyers give them warts and all because that allows them to deal with it early and it avoids them dealing with it in front of a judge at a tribunal on sort of two hours notice which unsurprisingly is a bit harder to deal with um successfully and then just a reminder, some, look at some of the war stories. Um, these claims are emotive. I think that, that point cropped up a few times uh, and involves human beings. They make mistakes. They do weird, strange things. And like Louise said, I think, I'm not sure you can legislate for it all the time. In fact, if it's something you can be certain of, it's that humans make mistakes. But I just think that was an important takeaway for me and maybe other people who are the decision makers and you're factoring that in when you're thinking about claim strategy. And finally, just on the trends point, I just think they were interesting trends to pull out obviously with the recession more cost cutting more redundancy more unfair dismissal claims that makes sense and then just the the age dis- discrimination trend and those disability discrimination trends to ones i'll be keeping an eye on fantastic yeah the thing that really stood out to me owen was was kind of the discussion around emotional involvement and and kind of you know i think you made the point that you can't really mitigate the emotional involvement. The emotional involvement is there and it's always going to be there, but it's about how you handle that and yeah. kind of manage it and recognize and kind of, I guess, embrace it without letting it ruin yeah, your yeah. case. So, yeah, yeah. I think Isa made the point about, yes, it's there, but uh, you have to take a step back and it's that ref- you know that, that reflection, taking time to reflect and reflect really on, on the wider picture. So look, it's not easy, is it? But yeah, no, agree. Yeah, absolutely not easy. Well, we'll leave it there then for our mammoth two-parter on EPL. Thank you to Louise, Anjali and Isabel. And Owen, we'll catch up again in uh, later in 2023. See you in 2023. Thanks, Richard.